0: This podcast was produced by members of the Pinsker Centre. The Pinsker Centre is a think tank which focuses on global foreign policy while promoting freedom of speech and fighting intolerance. If you'd be interested in learning more about our work, follow the Pinsker Centre on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Hello everyone, welcome to the Pinsker Centre podcast. My name is Georgia and I'm the Media Director for the Pinsker Centre and I'm honoured uh, today to be joined by Tim Ogden. Uh, Tim is the Assistant Editor for New Europe, an online magazine based in Brussels. He's also a contributor to The Spectator and a range of other outlets. How are you doing, Tim?
1: Very well, thank you. We're very, um, very happy to be with you. We've been planning this for a while, so good to, good to finally get it going.
0: Excellent. So just to sort of dive in straight off the bat, I've read mostly work that's been in The Spectator, and it often focuses on sort of the post-Soviet world in both Europe and Eurasia, the Caucasus, etc. Would you say that this is your specialism? And if so, uh, and even if not, (laughs) um, how did you first get interested in this specific uh, area of history and of current affairs?
1: Oh, it's very much my specialism. I've lived out in Georgia for 11 years, Georgia the country, I should, I should make clear, given that your name is also Georgia, let's make this abundantly clear. Um, or the
0: U.S. state, or the South Georgia uh, and the Sandwich <laughs> Islands.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I lived out in Tbilisi for most of the last 11 years, uh, along with trips to various other countries in, in the region, um, particularly uh, Ukraine. Yes, most of my work has, has been around the former Soviet Union. Uh, done a little bit here and there on Turkey, because obviously that's always going to be salient with the news in in this part of the world how did i get interested in it well um when i when i moved here uh, i'm I'm a political animal so it was sort of natural to get into um, journalism and writing and so on and uh if you've got lemons make lemonade As, as much as i would love to write about things like cancel culture and so on but there are um brains at places like the spectator far greater than mine when it comes to that so um no this is very much my my area and it's um, yes, fascinating part of the world, to be sure.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And don't you worry about it, because we have plenty of people writing about cancel culture at the moment. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I totally agree. And I think that a lot of people, myself, I would include in that, even though I have sort of an amateur interest, don't necessarily understand that much about that part of the world. They just think, oh, you know, it used to be the Soviet Union. It's poor or whatever. <laughs> they don't really know sort of uh, the diversity there. Different languages, the culture, the geography, what that plays um, in the conflicts and the some elements of peace there. We'll see mostly. Thank you. I, I can peace. talk about um, this
1: for calendar months, so do tell me to you
0: know,
1: <laughs> reel it in as and when as and when you have to.
0: We should definitely talk about Ukraine, of course, what's happening there right now. But I think you just mentioned you spent a lot of time in Georgia. Um, obviously, Georgia's located in the Caucasus. It has a huge border with Russia. It's actually invaded by Russia in 2008, or rather that was the most recent (laughs) invasion of Russia. What would you say that um, Western people should understand or Western pundits should understand about Georgia? And um, what's the reaction there uh, in terms of the Ukraine invasion? Do they feel threatened seeing sort of how Putin's operating in Ukraine right now or not maybe? And maybe I'm totally imprinting my Western perspective on them. Maybe that's not the case at all.
1: Well, there's a lot of big questions there. I shall try and address each of those. So what should Western people know about Georgia and the Caucasus region? Well, there's three countries in the Southern Caucasus, it's obviously with Georgia, um, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Now, each of those has pretty divergent foreign policies. So Armenia is very closely aligned with Russia, Azerbaijan tentatively sort of connected to the West, but really is more closely connected with Turkey. They share Um, linguistic and cultural and ethnic um, characteristics with Turkey and then Georgia is on paper the uh, the West's area of influence now that has sort of taken a few knocks recently because of the incumbent government but as has been made clear in the rallies over the past month the government do not represent the people Georgia in itself is a whole conversation so I will try and keep this as, as brief as I possibly can The government here are treading quite a fine line. So as you mentioned, Georgia was invaded in uh, 2008. There are two regions of Georgia that uh, remain occupied by uh, Russian troops and their um, separatist allies. And that's not that long ago. Everyone here remembers it very clearly. And Russian troops being in this area, stationed in those areas makes it um, always a, a, a pertinent risk. So the government here have quite a fine line to tread in not provoking the Russians. At the same time, Georgia is a NATO aspirant member and an EU aspirant member, like Ukraine, and they naturally have aligned with um, Ukraine closely over the last, uh, especially the last 10 years. However, the problem that they're facing at the moment in this country is the government hasn't been condemning Russia that explicitly, and that is upsetting the people quite a lot. There's been arrests of protesters who are demanding that um, the government here make their position clear, especially they, they think they should support Ukraine, and openly condemn Russia. So the government are saying things like they expressed the deepest condolences of, of the tragedy in Bucha that we saw over the last few days, that was the massacre of, of the civilians just north of Kyiv. Well, people here are saying you, you need to explicitly mention Russia, Putin, Russian soldiers. The government claim what they're trying to do is not bring down Russia's wrath on this country, which might sound fair enough, but um, they've been dogged by accusations for years of, of covert pro-Russian sentiment. So the effects are being felt here. Um, the fortunate thing for Georgia's government is there's no real viable opposition. So there's, there's no chance of a, of a revolution or, um, or anything like that. Do the people feel threatened by Russia? Absolutely. That has also become a little bit uh, more keenly felt recently because we've had an influx of, I think, over 30,000 Russian people come and live here now, people who are fleeing Putin's Russia as a result of things like being cut off from SWIFT and the sanctions. And Georgian people are not exactly happy about this. It's driven up prices for just about everything, and they're very worried that these people can certainly be used as an excuse by Russia to come and... Defend, in inverted commas, their citizens who uh, live here. There's no immediate threat of that. In my opinion, the Russian army is rather busy at the moment losing a war against Ukraine. In fact, Russia has even withdrawn many of its troops in this region to uh, redeploy them to um, the Ukrainian front. Yeah, the effects of the Ukrainian war are very much being felt down here. Further south, I, I, I am sounding a bit like a weather forecast now, but further south, we have Armenia-Azerbaijan, and who in 2020 fought um, the latest iteration of their ongoing war against each other over the separatist region of, of Nagorno-Karabakh, internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but populated by ethnic Armenians. War ended in a victory for um, Azerbaijan, but um, there's been a resumption of fighting over the past few weeks because Russia's peacekeepers were withdrawn and, and sent to Ukraine. So it is something of a mess. Now, I suppose the question that any Western listener would be asking themselves now is why should I care? Well, the Caucasus is the gateway between Europe and Asia. It's been strategically uh, important for centuries. This, this area was contested between the, the Romans And their their enemies in ancient Persia and then the Byzantine Empire um, had a client state here more recently between the Ottomans and the Persian Empire. And then obviously the, the Soviet Union conquered this area in the 1920s. Plus, you have the Caspian oil and gas resources. So out of Azerbaijan come the only pipelines that are not under Iranian or Russian control. They flow through here in Georgia and they go into Turkey. Now, the energy crisis that we're seeing at the moment is making this pipeline more, uh, more vital than ever. So this is an important region, even though there's only three small countries with small populations. And I think the strategic importance of this region is going to become highlighted over the next few years, and maybe even sooner than that, perhaps the next few months. So it's all, as always, very exciting. And for those of us who live here, rather worrying.
0: Maybe if I could ask a little bit more about possibly China and Iran's role in the region. Obviously, both of them have frontier zones with the Caucasus. And sort of, I suppose, historically, it's been an important region for that reason, not just because of its links, I suppose, with Turkey and Russia. And now we see China, obviously, internally more weak than a lot of Western commentators possibly think, but still on its way to becoming a great power. Um, Iran's sort of uh, feeling triumphant right now as U.S. plans to roll back sanctions on it. What role could they play, possibly in conjunction with Russia or possibly rivaling Russia uh, in the region, especially when it comes to uh, energy in, in the Caucasus? Well,
1: China has invested a lot in Georgia, especially in, in recent years. But they're economically aggressive rather than militarily, so people don't feel particularly threatened um, by China. Iran, um, less of a concern, in Georgia, they have more of an impact in Armenia and Azerbaijan, they have had a very um, hostile history with Azerbaijan for a very long time. And in the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 2020, they supported Armenia quite um, firmly. So as you say, they're feeling quite pleased with themselves because of the, the rollbacking of sanctions against them. But here really the, the worry is more Russia than them. Iran's rivalry in this region is, is really with Turkey, especially over Turkey's backing of, um, of Azerbaijan. If, as I think is unlikely, but, but you know, who knows in this part of the world, if Armenia and Azerbaijan come to blows again, then there's more risk of something happening between um, Turkey and, and Iran because they were at each other's throats in, in 2020. But with the Georgia and Ukraine, those countries are sort of less of a factor here.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that um, Azerbaijan and Iran have still that quite hostile relationship. I was going to say that I think, I believe both of them are the only two majority Shia uh, Muslim nations in the world. But saying that, obviously, you know, Ukraine is majority Orthodox and Russia is mostly Orthodox and many other countries are mostly Orthodox and they've still had uh, huge historic and ongoing conflicts. Um, But I think people in the West would less understand the rivalry between Azerbaijan and Iran, or or even sort of know, especially Azerbaijan, you know where it's on the map. So maybe if you could just summarise that, because I find that quite um, interesting.
1: I can tell you, so it, it doesn't really. Iran doesn't really recognise Azerbaijan's right to exist. It, it it resents Azerbaijan's close friendship with with Israel and obviously with its connection with with Turkey. It is odd that yes, they're both Shia Muslim, but um, Azerbaijan has a very good relationship with Turkey, which is Sunni but not with, uh, not with Iran. In the war in 2020 between Armenia and Azerbaijan, Iran was very firmly supporting Armenia. And a good friend of mine from Tehran, who obviously keeps up with, with the news in his own country, he told me quite a funny thing. He said that the government in Tehran was saying they firmly supported Armenia. They even sent a few divisions of their army to Armenia's border, so I'm threatening really to send them over and help Armenia in its war against Azerbaijan. And he said that the reaction amongst the public was the sort of stupefied bemusement that you had the leadership in Tehran threatening another Shia Muslim country to defend a Christian nation. And he said, he said that he, he never thought he'd live to see the day anything quite like that. But no, it's... It, those, I think, I mean, I, I'm giving a bit of a hostage to, to Fortune here. I don't think we're going to see anything overly violent in, in, in the Southern Caucasus in between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The, the, uh, the greatest risk really is um, a greater escalation of the Ukrainian conflict further north. All eyes are very firmly fixed up there. But in this part of the world, you, you really, you never can tell uh, for certain. So who you knows?
0: Mm-hmm. And you are, uh, of course, to know it so intimately, as you have said, I suppose circling back north to Ukraine, probably the obvious question in a lot of people's minds, both in the West, probably in Russia, too, and, and beyond, is what do you think that Vladimir Putin's endgame is in Ukraine? Do you think that he simply wants to sort of annex it as part of to rejoin some sort of Russian empire? Is that his endgame?
1: Uh, well, the endgame has changed by the week over the last... Um... How long has it been now, a month and a half I mean yeah. they, they launched their assault clearly with the intent that it would be over very, very quickly. I mean the Western intelligence agencies say they think it was supposed to last about three days, which is consistent with how they chose to fight by the sort of blitzkrieg assault that and, and ended fast. They took I think false confidence from their war against Georgia in two thousand and eight, which lasted uh, five days and um, the operations in 2014 against Ukraine, in which they quite quickly took control of Crimea and most, although not all, of of the Donbass region. So very, very bad miscalculation on their part. But I think it's important for people to understand that Russian propaganda is incredibly strong. They And most, most people don't get this because they sort of see Russian people, they maybe meet them and so on, and their culture is not too dissimilar in how they, you know, their their social attitude and so on. But with their view of politics, especially their own country, they're not watching the same movie as the rest of us. They have utterly convinced um, their people that Ukraine is this Nazified nation, they're sort of bringing back the imagery of the Soviet Union breaking the back of the Nazis in World War II and, and treating this as as the next iteration of that. So a good friend of mine from, from Russia told me that um, he didn't really understand how the world worked until he left Russia and came to live here in Tbilisi. And he had access then to, to other news sources and perspectives. Just as a side note, the reason for that mostly seems to be that although in, in Western countries, we mostly get our news from social media and so on and, Twitter and Facebook and all this stuff, that has never really happened in Russia. They're still, television is still the most popular medium of people getting their news from. But to go to your question about an end game, originally I think it was supposed to be a, a decapitation of the leadership with Zelensky captured or preferably killed. They did send in um, special units to try and um, assassinate him, which failed miserably. That has then shifted now that their assault on Kiev has just failed catastrophically. I think they would be happy with carving up certain parts of, uh, of eastern Ukraine, which actually I thought w- would be their whole plan to begin with. So I wrote for um, The Spectator and elsewhere back in February, that when this seemed to be uh, on the horizon, my prediction was they would launch everything they had at Mariupol and they would try and make a land bridge between Donbass and, by extension, Russia proper, and Crimea. I mean, they're a land power. They, they like everything connected by, especially by rails. That seemed to be the most logical thing. The, the, an attack on Kiev, I, I really didn't think, because it just seemed like it would be madness, and demonstrably was. Um, if the circumstances were a little less tragic, I would be dancing around saying, I told you so at the top of my lungs, because on, on two counts, First of all, I was I was, <laughs> I was pitching things uh, to editors as early as November and January, saying, "Look, you know, my contacts over there, and having been there myself recently, this seems to be different. This Russian troop buildup seems to have, to be laced with more uh, venomous intent." And this was these were dismissed as, "Oh, not one for us at this time, thank you." And you know, obviously in, in February, it all it all kicked off, and also by the performance of the Ukrainian army. Um, I spent some time last year in Mariupol uh, with the Ukrainian Marines and um, I asked them lots of questions about their training and they seemed to be singing from the same military hymn sheet as, as British soldiers and, and Americans. So I knew that their army had changed a lot in in eight years. They, they were not as professional in 2014 as they are now. And eight years for this sort of thing is, is is quite a long time. So there has been time for those sorts of seismic changes. As the Russians have found out to their cost. So an end game at this point, when Putin needs a way out, I think based on how strong their propaganda is and what they're able to to get away with, I mean, look, if Putin says something in Russia, it's believed he could sell shoes to a snake. It is that level of of lunacy. I think if he took a city decisively, whether it's Mariupol or Zaporozhye, which they haven't even invested yet. He could now portray that as the great victory that they that they were hoping for. I think it would be a bit of a tough sell based on the casualties, because no matter how strong the propaganda is, there there has still been protests in, in Russia, it's more limited than they were about a month ago, admittedly, but they need a way out. They they have badly underestimated Ukraine. They've taken a military mauling and they've achieved nothing. I mean, they they've taken Kherson, which is just north of I'm sure people have seen the, the, the maps that are shared on places by the BBC and Sky News. But with the Ukrainian army regrouping just to the north, it's a pretty tenuous hold. Mariupol, despite the fact they have basically wiped it off the map in terms of you know, buildings and so on, they still haven't taken it. It's, it's taken them a month and a half that they've achieved nothing. There's, there's nothing that they can use to portray this as, as a victory. But Putin can't lose. And they, he's going to get desperate. I don't think this ends anytime soon, because they're going to send in more people from Russia. But at the same time, um, Ukraine's army units in the the garrison in Kiev is now free to move around, try and relieve the cities elsewhere. This will not end anytime soon, unless Putin threatens the use of nuclear weapons, which I think is unlikely, because you you don't nuke the place you're trying to conquer, because then you're not inheriting anything except an irradiated mess. So... I think this could be a, a very nasty battle of, of attrition. I hope not, but um, it is possible.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely, and it seems sort of as uh, Ukrainian troops are taking back certain areas, some of the villages outside Kiev, for example, we're seeing sort of horrific uh, evidence of some of the crimes committed against civilians by um, the Russian troops, and I suppose we would hope that things get better, but... Usually um, in, in many wars, I believe, when the uh, invader is uh, losing, they actually become more hostile because they sort of feel they've got nothing left to lose. Sort of, I guess, pivoting to a more global angle, obviously Ukraine and Russia, especially Ukraine sort of being known as, you know, the breadbasket of Europe, um, a big producer of wheat and other grains and also um, oils, uh, seed oils, that kind of thing, and fertilizers as well, of course. In terms of the, the knock-on effect of on global agriculture and the global food chain supply in general, how bad do you think it could get? Because I'm hearing about places in the Middle East that could sort of run out of cooking oil. Even in the UK, you know, of course, we have people who are farming certain um, things like rapeseed, but not to so near the degree that it's used. How bad do you think it's going to get, basically, in terms of food supplies? Obviously, bread being the main thing, uh, more important than oil, but oil is still obviously very important for cooking.
1: Um, yeah, the lack of cooking oil is already being felt, apparently, in Turkey. I mean, it could be pretty bad, but I mean, I, I will quote um, a Ukrainian friend of mine who is a refugee for the second time in, in his life, because he comes from Donetsk, and he, had to, he left in 2014, and then he moved here, then he moved back to Kiev, and now he's a refugee again uh, in Uzhgorod. and he said, he said, yes, yes, it's very sad that you haven't got cooking oil. However, our people are quite literally being murdered. So find something else and, and, and cope with it. I mean, I, I wouldn't perhaps quite phrase it as bluntly as that, but, but I do take his point. It could be bad, but um, Ukraine has, has got it rather worse. I think that the Western response overall to this crisis has been fairly, well. it was too, too divided to begin with, um, has been a bit too weak since. And the thing is, if nothing else, I mean, if, if Russia loses this war militarily, as I uh, believe and hope that it, that it will, it's proved the, the impotence of things like the United Nations. I mean, the, the UN is, is demonstrably as ineffective as the organization it was designed to replace. Um, mm-hmm. NATO and EU membership, again, to quote another Ukraine, Ukrainian friend of mine, even if they do one day get membership, is this a price which is worth paying? The other side of that coin, though, is I, I don't hold with the view of a lot of, um, shame to say, some conservative-minded commentators are saying things like, you know, this, is, this isn't our war, this isn't our fight, and you, and NATO expansion has provoked Russia into uh, its actions. Well, you know, really? Are you so sure? The reason why places like Ukraine and Georgia want to be in NATO is because <laughs> their entire recent history is one of being invaded by whatever iteration of, of uh, Russian power is sitting on the throne in Moscow. So I hope that they will stay the Western course. I hope that I don't think neutrality would, would be in Ukraine's interest. And I, I wouldn't trust Russia to, to abide by any neutrality pact that, that it signs. But a, a, a sticky situation for Zelensky at the moment, certainly.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. In terms of the whole like you're saying, certain conservative commentators, well, really they're aligning with a lot of, uh, I guess, sort of, sort of far-left commentators as well, sort of anti-Western, anti-NATO types. So a lot of them, as you're saying, they do tend to try and place the blame for the conflict happening right now on that, say, NATO expansion or the Western attitudes toward Russia. It'd be interesting to sort of maybe get into that a bit more. However, I suppose my main question would be, I totally am on the same page with you when it comes to whether NATO expansion is causes war. It didn't. Um, and you was saying, if places like Ukraine were in NATO, Russia, I do not think, would have the gall to invade. And obviously, we know throughout history, you know, Russia has invaded, let's say, Ukraine, the Caucasus, wherever, the Baltics, wherever, before NATO even existed. <laughs> um, so the idea that this is the main cause of the war is ridiculous. Um, however... In terms of the West and obviously, you know, the US being the the Western superpower, the global superpower still currently um, over the past few decades, uh, how do you think its attitude at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union and throughout the 90s towards Russia and in terms of sort of the idea of shock therapy to its economy, that kind of thing, do you think maybe that did contribute to a sort of weakening of, of Russia's economy and its I suppose the morale of its of its people pushing it into what it became almost immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, it became sort of, you know, a dictatorship ran by oligarchs. Did the West somehow in some way contribute to that, even if it's not to blame for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, say?
1: Well, the West has a nasty habit of assuming that everyone else Wants or can uh, adopt its values. So you've seen that in in uh, Georgia now. You know they they spend a lot of time reforming uh, this country. They spend time doing the same in Iraq and Afghanistan and Ukraine. It, it just doesn't work. Uh, you can't assume that everyone's going to abide by the same democratic principles and ideas of liberty just because in our culture we believe they are the best and they are the best ways to run societies and. Uh, Tied to this is the idea that in the 1990s, they never imagined that, that Russia would be resurgent in, in the way that it has become. I agree with, who, who wrote the other day, posted an article saying that in the 90s, Germany and Europe becoming dependent on Russian gas and oil was just, was just insanity. But it was all on the assumption that, that Russia would never rise again. It would never be this this wannabe world power. So it's, it's a big misreading of, the Russian character and the Russian mentality and the Russian attitudes, because, and, you know, as I said before, they, their society is very similar to ours. Ethnically, they're very similar. There's, it's not obvious that their mentality is as different as the one you would find somewhere like in Tehran or, or Beijing. Um, but it is. And again, just touching back on the, the certain commentators, I did say conservatives, but yeah, you're right, I've, I've seen left thing to say too. I wouldn't say they are pro-Russian in what they're saying when they blame NATO for, the, uh, for this conflict or Georgia's conflict, um, although it can be interpreted that way. I just think they're either or both mis, uh, misguided over how they perceive Russia and, and what it is and how it is, and isolationist. I mean, we, we've had disastrous foreign interventions all over the Middle East, and, I will understand the appetite for not wanting to invest money and, the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, lives in endeavours that seem inherently doomed to fail. But I suppose if the West wants to keep the mantle of uh, the free world and the the civilised world, it it had best start defending the people who who share those values, which they do in Ukraine and and they they do not in Russia. So, but I suppose it's, what's also contributed to this, I think, is that is COVID. So over the last, good Lord, it's been over two years, hasn't it? There's sort of been a lot of, okay, we're not getting the whole picture. It's what they're not telling us that's real. So for instance, you know, you remember the the controversy over the Wuhan lab that China wouldn't let people, investigators go in to see if this virus had been manufactured as opposed to being a a natural apparition of whatever method. So there's there's sort of the the whataboutism, the instinct towards contrarianism. And yes, that, that applies in, in many situations, but not in this one. I'm not trying to say that Ukraine's government is perfect and always has been. It's just that in its particular case, this is as clear cut as there is a good side and there's a bad side. And we should be stepping up our support for the good side. You can, you can argue the back and forth over wars like the Iraq intervention or Armenia and Azerbaijan, who has the right of that or even perhaps Georgia and its separatist territories of Ossetia and Abkhazia, or, or Afghanistan, but not in this case. This, this is very much as clear-cut as, as, as Nazi Germany versus uh, the Allies in the 1940s. Not everything has to have some underlying or unknown or concealed meaning. This, this does not. You know, I, I have been critical, of, as you said, you've read my stuff, you'll know that I've been critical of, of Zelensky as a, as a politician prior to this war. But he's an excellent wartime leader. You know, my, my criticisms of him before this, I think, still stand. But he, he's proven his, his mettle as, as, a, as a war leader, certainly. Staying in Kiev and leading his nation, I don't think... I think a lot of people who wouldn't have done that. Sorry, I got sidetracked there. But yes, <laughs> the, the West is on... Um, uh, I don't know, it's on, it's on quicksand, I think, at the moment.
0: Yeah, picking up off that point, I suppose, to round up, the things that we see happening, um, the decisions from Western leaders now and for many years prior to the current moment, the Iran deal, as I say, about to be revived, very uh, uh, back and forth to China with Biden and the UK government, for example, condemning some of their human rights abuses and some of their sort of territorial, not expansion, but let's say flying military jets near Taiwan and near the South China Sea, that kind of thing, uh, war games perhaps that's the phrase i was looking for and also with russia for example you know prior to the invasion we had biden admitting in a speech he said well you know if it was just a minor incursion we could Cursion, we could talk about that we don't know how we'd react if it was a natural invasion a full-scale invasion blah 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 and then saying they wouldn't sanction energy then saying they would sanction energy this back and forth uh, even you know the other day Biden calling for a regime change in a speech at sort of one o'clock in the morning and then the White House immediately backtracking on that. Why is there this muddled approach and do you think it's because of the incompetence of some leaders or do you think we basically just don't have a foreign policy at the moment in the UK, in the US, that obviously the US is basically calling the shots when it comes to the West in general, because it's holding the purse strings when it comes to defence spending, even though obviously, you know, Germany, France and the UK often can be critical of the US.
1: I mean, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, you, you can have both incompetent leaders and a lack of strategy and, and vision. Okay. I think the West has found itself in, in a position that it never thought to, to be. in again, in that its previous security concerns have all have been with, you know, the really since the 90s, have been with terrorist groups, especially obviously since, since 9-11. And while they can do damage, there's no existential threat coming from a group like ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda. So they've had to suddenly put themselves back in the sort of Cold War mentality when they don't want to. And the idea, I mean, I, I found it, maybe you noticed too, the response to the, to the Butcher massacre that we've seen, the civilians you know, have been shot in the back of the head after being tied up, and these appalling rapes and the violence inflicted, the response from the West was, was quite delayed. There, there was, it, it took a while. I mean, it was most of the day before you had statements coming from the White House at number 10 about this. I think just because they were in shock, they never thought they would have to deal in their lifetimes with a European power, which Russia is, behaving in this barbaric fashion. I mean, they thought this was consigned to the history books. They thought this was, you know, this is the SS in World War II uh, and the horrors of the 40s, not something they would ever live to see. And they don't really know how to deal with it. Biden has been a disaster. Um, I think Russia, a lot of people are asking me, why now? Why did Russia launch this invasion at this moment? when they've had this low-key war running against Ukraine for uh, for eight years. And I think Afghanistan and the, the debacle of that withdrawal was was a huge influencing factor there. And then, as you said, he's coming out with gaffes. Yes, he said uh, he was calling for regime change, which the White House then had to, had to downplay. Now, the, the danger with that was that Russia said that they will not launch nukes under any circumstances except what they term an existential threat. So if someone's calling for regime change in your country, you can define that as an existential threat. So, I mean, everyone says that he's a gaffe machine, and he is, and that, that's fine if, if you're on the campaign trail and embarrassing yourself to get votes, but not when you're dealing with a foreign power that has you know a, a, a massive nuclear arsenal. And diplomacy works best in vagaries. It's, it's not good to say what you won't do. So, for instance, when he said that, um, I think he, he even used the phrase, he, he tweeted that the United States and NATO will defend every inch of NATO territory, but we will not go to war under any circumstances on behalf of Kiev and Ukraine. Well, Russia interpreted that clearly as they can do whatever they please in Ukraine and expect to get away with it. And now they've been hit by so many sanctions. They're, they're, they have nothing to lose on, on that score. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing more horrific violence after statements like that have been made public. And I, I dread to think what else we're going to discover as as Ukraine liberates its territory further east and south. I, I think Butcher could just be the tip of a very, very humanitarian, disgusting uh, iceberg. It, it, it could be truly the worst thing that's happened in Europe in in almost 100 years, I I dread to think.
0: Yeah, possibly, just to round up again, sorry, a final question, probably an almost impossible question to answer, but uh, where do you think things are going uh, in terms of the conflict in Ukraine as it sits right now?
1: Well, it's not going to end anytime soon, because Zelensky is in a very unenviable position in that even if Russia says that it will accept Ukraine's promise of neutrality, his people at this point are not going to accept those peace terms, I don't think. I mean, they know their army is winning. Kiev has been secured. They don't they won't want any peace terms on, on, on Russia's terms, at least. I think we're going to see more battles in the East, especially as Russia sends in more of its troops. Zelensky has to be conscious of avoiding a repeat of of Euromaidan, some revolution against him if he does anything particularly unpopular. So I I don't see an end in the near future. Uh, one can hope, but I'm I'm afraid I'm not particularly optimistic of, of a quick end to any of this.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and well, I suppose it is optimism, or at least the public expression of optimism, in terms of what was happening in Ukraine prior to the build-up that sort of backed many people into this corner of thinking that they weren't actually, you know, Russia wouldn't actually invade, they wouldn't really do that, he would have to yeah. be mad to do it. That got us into the position in February, so end of February, so that was two months ago now, left sitting wondering what, what why we were so wrong or, or why the commentariat was so wrong again. Well, thank you so much for that your knowledge of this region is a sight to behold. It's very interesting to hear you speak about your experiences and your perspectives. And yeah, we would definitely um, love to have you on here again. Thank you.
1: Love to join you again. Thank you so much.
0: Okay, thank you.